Uh, I hope your life is ready and, and fully together. Um, I'm going to count us down. Uh, three. Mm, two. <sighs> You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome to Missing Out. This is the retrospective that's introspective. I'm Tari J. Miller. I'm Lex Michael. And we're talking today about the 1979 and 1981. 78. Look, I go by the Amazon <laughs> dates. If, if, if Amazon decides to be wrong, so do I. Oh, fantastic. We're off to a fantastic start. Great. Uh, <laughs> we're doing a double feature today. Um, and you may have seen on our Twitter, which is Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Um, or you may have seen a retweet from either me or Lex uh, on our personal Twitters. Mine is Tari J, T-E-R-I-J-A-Y. Mine is at the Lex Michael. And so we're going to be talking about both of these beauties. Oh, yeah. Yes. You got it. Uh, 1978's Halloween, directed by John Carpenter, and 1981's Halloween 2, directed by Rick Rosenthal, both co-written by Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Yes. Um... Two, I would say, I, similar but different movies. Um, That's a, a decent way to put it up front. Yeah. Um, but they take place right after the other. So from the point that, uh, that from the point that uh, Halloween 1 leaves off, we start directly after for Halloween 2. Yes, picks up Im- immediately with uh, spoilers. Uh, Loomis shooting Michael off the balcony. Loomis checks in with Laurie for a second, looks over, Michael's gone. Yep. Halloween 2 picks up immediately after that moment with Loomis running around the house being like, where'd he go? Yeah. It's like if you took really suspenseful movies and then were like, what happens after all the cool suspenseful stuff? And then like you see it and then you're like, all right. And then you settle in and then a new movie starts. Sure. Well, I guess immediately you get to the idea that maybe Halloween did not necessarily need a sequel, which is something I think John Carpenter would agree with. Yes. I believe that he originally intended number one to be a standalone movie. The, since it was a box office hit, they decided to make a sequel and he's like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Cause I wasn't making a lot off of the first one because of, that's how contracts were uh, negotiated back in the day. Yes. Uh, and so he's like, I am owed money. Give me this money with this sequel. Um, and he salvaged it as best as he could. Yeah. I mean, he's talked pretty openly about being fueled by a six pack of beer a night as he right. was writing. And he would write himself into corners. And that's where he'd co- he came up with, for example, like going, going all the way, like way into the second movie right up top. Uh, the whole idea of Laurie being Michael's sister. Yeah. was something that he talks about one night being super drunk and going like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. All right. God help me. I'm going to do this. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I had because I had thoughts about that because um, it's since I am watching it for the first time after like over two decades worth of knowledge about Halloween. I like going in. I knew that 
Michael Myers was a sister murder. I knew that the Jamie Lee Curtis character was supposed to be a sister. Um, I know that for some reason he's an unstoppable killer. Um, so knowing those things, it's, um, it's tough going into the first one, knowing all of that and having right. all of that cover the events of the first movie. Because I think if you look at that first movie in a vacuum, yes, you can tell that it was done for very low money. There are some little, you know, gaffes on screen. There's that shot really early on where Lori and Linda and Annie are walking home from school and they're walking towards the camera. And there's a shot where for a large amount of the shot, uh, as it tracks, you can see the sleeve of a crew member drift in and out of the frame, stuff like that. But even given the presence of certain elements like that one, it's a perfectly crafted movie. And there is so much that is accomplished and so much that is conveyed with so very, very little. And they don't worry about filling in all of this information about uh, mythology and these family connections and possible supernatural ties because none of it is that important it is michael as this abstraction of evil in a human form just stalking these girls and if she's not his sister and this was not the intention when they made the first movie this was something they invented for the sequel three years later this it could be anybody you know what mm-hmm. i mean it could be it could be you if you were babysitting uh tommy doyle on halloween night and that idea is even scarier because it's not specific she wasn't targeted for any specific personal connection yeah she could be anyone and that i think makes it a lot more unsettling yeah because essentially in the first movie he's just a guy who escaped from a mental institution that likes to kill teenage girls um when it starts when he's very young right and he kills his older sister judith for no ostensible reason yeah other than the fact that he like hates the look of nipples like i i I figured that was the deal is he's like man i do not like nipples and then the moment that he sees her get naked he's like gotta get rid of him he's very modest well that's why he wears that that jumpsuit yeah. Basically, it's because it covers the whole thing and the mask. He's a very modest fellow. He really Michael. is. And he just can't. He's very uncomfortable with immodesty. Yeah. I mean, hey, I get it. I mean, he's 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 uh, forced to dress up as a clown as a kid. And, uh, you know, babysitters are, are terrible. They're just using that job to, to get laid and things. He's a neglected kid. He's a he's a really like he's the victim in this whole thing, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That absolutely. Well, okay, so there's <laughs> just a lot to unpack there. It's I mean, and I don't want to get too far off any one point because there's so much uh to unpack, but you talk about the you're joking of course about the idea of him being the victim, but if you jump to say Rob Zombie's Halloween remake from 07. A movie that I think is totally solid in execution is essentially two halves, and I think both halves are maybe a little bit misguided. Mm -hmm. Uh, First half of the movie is essentially filling in Michael's backstory. It's giving you all this information about how terrible and trashy his family was and how, like, oh, this kid, of course, this kid. He was probably born a little not right, and then he just, he never had a show. He was basically like a little leather face, almost. Right. Like, his family wasn't necessarily trying to turn him into a killer, but it was that perfect storm of terrible elements. And then you track him, like, through therapy with Loomis, and you... 
track him like as he's living as an adult in the asylum a whole bunch of stuff that again the execution is totally fine but the more you explain about who he is the less scary he becomes because Mm -hmm. he's now he's now human he's now no matter how big and tough and seemingly indestructible he is he now has a a human face metaphorically and and literally and then the second half of the movie is uh, essentially a more brutal beat-for-beat retelling of the original movie, which seems unnecessary, especially when I think one of the most impressive elements of Carpenter's original is how stripped down and elegant it is. Now, yes, a lot of that was by necessity. They only had so much money to work with. And for all intents and purposes, it was a group of student filmmakers. But think about how how violent some of the murders in the movie are and how little blood there is right there's almost literally no blood in the movie at all because there doesn't need to be because you can you can fill in as an audience member you can fill in all of the negative space yourself and the way they compose their shots and the way they lay sound design in and the way they the score i mean carpenter did famously did his own music for uh, most of his projects Mm -hmm. this score one of the most iconic scores in all of filmdom one of his just shot composition and the score alone ratchets up the tension to about 10,000 and you don't even have to, you don't have to see anything. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. You're just in this constant state of like, you're, you're like a cat with his back arch, just waiting for something to happen all with using basic filmmaking elements. I mean, it's, it's what uh, Hitchcock I think would call pure cinema and that it is all image and sound. You don't have to have, you know, you don't have to have like crashing big noises. You don't have to throw blood around. You can establish so much mood and so much feeling with just the basic core elements, yeah. which is an approach that they abandon largely by the time even we get to Halloween too. Yes. So uh, kind of starting from the beginning of that, like I know that Carpenter originally, when he was thinking up the concept of Michael Myers or the shape, he wanted it to be as unrelatable for the audience as it could be um and yes i the shot composition like a lot of the long shots and the really like kind of telling uh just still shots so there's this concept where it's it's mostly in fighting fighting movies you'll see it a lot in jackie chan movies where essentially they will use the camera to show where a shot is going so that as it's moving, you know that eventually, like even up on a subconscious level, you know it's eventually going to go to this one spot. And so I find that uh, that is used a lot in this movie as well in that, for example, there are moments when you, as a, if you know how horror movies work, know that like when someone opens a door and it's a shot on them and most of it is kind of geared towards the right you know that when they close that door something is going to be there or when or as they move something is going to appear and things of that sort right but like at the at this time that wasn't kind of that wasn't the norm it was more revolutionary i mean you can go back to obviously we talked about texas chainsaw this month which predates halloween by a few years and you could go back even further to psycho and you know peeping tom and you can see examples of you know slasher-esque 
movies. Right. But Halloween, I think, was the the granddaddy of the slasher subgenre as we have largely come to understand it. I mean, the creators of Friday the 13th are pretty open about the fact that they were just trying to make a Halloween knockoff. Right. So Halloween is is uh, ground zero, if you will, for a lot of the heavily repeated tropes that we often see associated with these movies, despite, I would argue, not approaching them in the way that they would come to be used at all. I mean, there aren't that, there are a couple, but there aren't that many jump scares in Halloween, for example. Uh, no, not really. Most of the time it is just a, a wandering, I guess a, a wandering shot of maybe, uh, Michael in the background for a second or yes, other... or still shot of him watching you from a distance mm-hmm. or even like one of the greatest shots in, in film in my opinion and now of course it's been turned into a gif and memed so a lot of people are familiar with it uh i saw recently it's i saw it associated with the republican health care bill but it's like uh the shot of Lori after she stabs him with the hanger in the closet grabs the knife stabs him he's on the floor she's crying in the doorway yeah and in the background it's just one still shot in the background in one motion michael's whole torso lifts up off the ground and his head turns Mm -hmm. at her just in the background yeah and that's it there's no and you know now he's up and there's no boo moment you just feel it's just tension building tension building tension building as you see him coming closer and closer and closer and it is so so crazy effective and it feels so earned all of the most terrifying moments in a way that Jump scares might be effective, but to me, they always feel super cheap. Right. feels like a way to get a scare in without earning it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Halloween is so much more interested in building an atmosphere and building that tension so that you, you know the moments are coming. You're sitting down in a theater and watching a horror movie, but really earning the moments and getting the most out of the buildup to those moments. Yeah. And you had mentioned that in... I keep wanting to call it episode two, but in the second one, they kind of shy away from the tension aspect and go more for the gory uh, kind of like kill orientedness of it. And I know that that was, I I guess I had read that that was a last minute decision by Carpenter himself. Whereas, so um, the director wanted it to be more tense and nuanced, but at the time, uh, movies like Friday the 13th and other stuff had more of a an edgy gory um blood oriented feel to it and so uh Carpenter being afraid of uh kind of feeling tame in comparison he threw he like reshot and threw in extra scenes just to make it more cool and bloody sure and there are a couple I mean I know there are a couple of different versions of the movie floating around I know there's a TV version that you can get a hold of now where uh, I think some kills are switched around. Some are omitted though. Weirdly, there are a couple of like the nurse characters that just disappear from the movie completely in the TV version with no explanation. But I feel like, all right, so look at the, the types of kills that we see in the first movie, even I would argue probably the bloodiest ostensibly would be when he kills his sister at the beginning of the movie. And even though you see the knife, you know, going up and down in a stabbing motion, there's no real gore at all to speak of. Right. Uh, but it's also very straightforward. It's very stripped down. It's just dude with a knife. It's like the prototypical slasher movie murder. Yeah. And of course, now the longer they kept making slasher movies, the more bizarre, the more out there the kills became. And even by the time you get to Halloween 2, only three years later, uh, 
compared to the first movie where it's like mostly stabbings you get like the hypodermic needle mm-hmm. in the eye you get the like burning in the the hot tub you get the the flesh melting off yeah. a lot of uh, by comparison much more bonkers out there stuff yeah i i think the the one that got me the most was when he stabbed a girl in the spine with a with with a scalpel oh, yeah, and then lifted her. her off the ground yeah. which was a, a fit of a feat of strength i think is insanity um in that like i get the idea of in the first one when he lifts the guy and he has him against the wall and he basically pins him with the knife um because yes he's strong but also like it wasn't like he was lifting him with a tiny instrument um and i think that that comparison shows just how kind of i the term i want to say is bonkers but uh just how the subtlety it has left or how less less subtle i guess is definitely the, bonkers i think bonkers is is an appropriate term uh to use when describing halloween too uh but also they start to layer in a bunch of mythology that becomes points of reference for the series going forward to one extent or another that i think are not only unnecessary they start to strip away the effectiveness of Michael as a character and as a force. And I think you start to see that in Halloween 2 as well. I think we we keep talking about this. We talked about it, I think, every episode we've done this month because I think it continues to be true for all of these uh, quote-unquote monster characters. The more you explain about what motivates them, what drives them, the less interesting they become. If you can show us, like we see Leatherface with his family. You don't have to stop and explain, well, they fed him live cows and people arms when he was growing up and yeah. so of course he became whatever you don't need to be told all of that because we see what his family's like yeah we can make inferences ourselves we don't need to be told for example that uh you know michael worships the the pagan ritualistic origin concept of the halloween holiday we don't need to know necessarily that she's his sister and that's why he's doing x he is he is he is, as Loomis keeps saying, he is evil. He's pure evil. He is yeah. evil in a human form, hence the shape. He's not even a person. Yeah. He is just a, a form driven by pure instinctual evil. And the more detail you layer on top of that, the more inherently silly he starts to become. Yeah. The more he's just a, a dude with a real bad attitude walking around in a William Shatner mask. <laughs> um, well, I have two thoughts about that in that I, I wonder how when people were watching, I know this, the second one gets a lot of mixed reviews. Um, and don't get me wrong, I say being, everything that I'm saying, but I also quite enjoy Halloween too. Yeah. Um, well, I, I know that mainly the, the mixed reviews are because people are comparing it to the first one, which was like, it was a masterpiece. And so the second one in, inherently um, was going to be a, just something that tries to expand upon that that's like if someone was looking at starry night and was like you know what i bet i could i could keep tell you what's happening outside of the the frame of starry night just Um, all people lifting up other people with scalpels right um but oh but i wonder how people watching this for the first time felt about that idea of Jamie Lee Curtis's character Lori being his sister. 
Um, I know that like there's this whole thing down the line in the Michael Myers story and that he basically comes back later and is like, I have to kill my niece now. And well, and that's so, what, so Halloween, Halloween three is the one that has absolutely nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's right. the one that is about, uh, evil Halloween masks and yes. he's gonna, uh, it's Dan O'Hurley. is the villain and he's going to use Stonehenge magic essentially to activate these Halloween masks and all the kids who are watching this broadcast will have their faces melted and a whole bunch of bugs will come out and this will destroy the world. It's bonkers. It's nowhere near as bad as its reputation suggests. I think it only gets that reputation because it's now known as the one Halloween movie that's not a Halloween movie as right. we've come to understand them. But it is in line with Carpenter's original vision for the series, which was going to be an anthology type of thing where Halloween would be a brand more than it would be, you know, yeah. it's another Michael Myers kills people picture. But then with Halloween 4, because Halloween 3 was not super well-received, they went back to Michael Myers, resurrected both him and Loomis. And they survived, both of them survived the explosion at the end of 2, despite that seeming like a pretty definitive ending. Yeah. Which was the intention at the time. I think Carpenter wanted the character to be dead, and because 2 did well, or better anyway than 3 did... Etc. So yeah. they brought Loomis back as well, and Donald Pleasance had uh, burn makeup on his cheek. And that's about it. Other than that, he's totally cool. And Pleasance would continue to appear in the movies until he died. He died making six, like r near the tail end of production, I think before they had finished their reshoots. Yeah. Uh, but he talked about how he would keep, he would just keep making them until he wasn't able to. But the protagonist that you follow in four and five is a girl named Jamie Lloyd, who's played by Daniel Harris, who incidentally appears in four Halloween movies across two separate universes. But she is the daughter, supposedly, of Laurie Strode. And I think it's possibly implied that Laurie might have died in a car accident or something. She's not around. There's a photo of Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Uh, Jamie's living with another family and Michael ends up going after her in the fourth and fifth movie. And then in the sixth movie, the focus transfers away from her and onto the Strode family, like the extended family of the family that adopted Laurie. And apparently Michael has to now kill all of them because he's afflicted with this ancient pagan curse. Uh, it's like the thorn cult has cursed okay. him and the the curse is such that he has to kill every single member of his family which apparently backfills why he killed his sister why he wanted to kill Lori, why he wanted to possibly kill his niece in four and five and the beginning of six spoilers she dies Man. uh different actress though so it feels oddly disconnected from the character in four and five yeah but then I forget why he now has to kill the extended adopted family of his sister. But again, seems wildly unnecessary. And it seems that the greatest possible impact would be to make him less effective as a force. Because at that point, if he's just afflicted with a curse, he's basically a pawn. Right. He's basically a flunky of this cult, I suppose. Yeah. If you trace it back far enough. Um, so I guess my, my main question beyond like how people received it, and I guess it relates to how people received it in that I, I wonder in people's mind how Jamie Lee, Laurie being his sister, um, is how it is less effective 
than Luke being Darth Vader's son and that they both serve to like, they kind of both shrink the universe a little bit more and they both kind of give an interesting uh, context to the, the villain characters. Um, but ultimately like, so I feel like they have the same effect that it's just the execution is different. And so it's received differently. Yeah. But I would say Vader, even in the first movie, is presented very much as a character and not as an abstraction. Like, he's a mysterious character. He's an imposing character. But I don't think Vader is ever... You know, he's archetypical, but I don't think he's ever presented as an abstraction. Okay. And I think that's the big difference. I think Michael in the first Halloween is very much that. He's not a character. He's he's a force of nature. And I think for me, that's the big difference. It's part of why my least favorite moment in the entire first movie is that moment where she pulls his mask off. Mm. Because it's like, we know there's probably a human face under there, but that's not who he is. Like, I feel like Michael's actual fit, much in the same way that Bruce Wayne is Batman. I yeah. suppose his real face is the is the cowl. You know what I mean? Like the Bruce Wayne identity is the mask. It's That's the false face. I feel like Michael's face, whatever his face looks like under the mask is irrelevant because once he pulls that mask on, that uncanny near human visage that's his face yeah i there's a way of reading that scene where it's like in that moment because he's strangling laurie when she pulls the mask off and when she does his only he lets her go his only concern in that moment is getting his face back on Mm -hmm. which okay i don't dislike that interpretation i can go with it but again to me anytime you show that abstraction as being more human it it makes it concrete in a way that I think undermines it slightly. Interesting. Because, well, does it still have that effect? Even though you, you see him in the, the first time he escapes, you see him in his full form or like you see him as a regular person. Like he's just a dude with long hair who's climbing on top of a car who has regular man hands. So like, I feel like that, that just extended the idea that he is this, escaped mental patient uh who's just doing a bunch of stuff because the same could be said of when he was doing the bit underneath the the sheet when the girl was true he is depicted as having a sense of humor of sorts right so like i i don't feel like that takes away from the uh, the abstractness in that like you don't know why he killed his sister you don't know why he likes killing people in general you you only really get that he has kind of a an emptiness inside of him that maybe can only be filled with rage uh, or like murder. Like you, you get that there's something lacking inside of him. So I just feel like it just adds an extra layer of kind of what you were saying earlier that it could be anybody. Like it, it makes it so that this could be just a dude that you meet on the street that could be murdering as many people as he can. Right. I mean, and it, that's that's part of what I mean when I keep I keep referring to him as an abstraction. He is an idea. He is the evil that exists within all people. He is the darkest elements of everyone given, appropriately enough, shape. And I agree with you completely. It's that. And that's why I think, too, the faceless aspect of it, the abstraction aspect of it, when you can maintain it, makes it the most effective. Because the more specific detail you ascribe to that character, the the less he could be anybody. And the more he becomes very specifically who he is. Right. Right? Is that track? Yeah, I get that. 
Um, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. But of course, you have, I feel like to one extent or another, if you're going to make seven sequels, eventually you do have to start layering things on top of it, if only to avoid making the exact same movie over and over and over and over. And that's why it's so hard to maintain the the scare factor as associated with so many of these characters. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about all month how excellent some of the first or first couple movies in many of these series are. And how over time the sequels become less and less and less effective, largely because the monster at the center of your movie becomes more and more and more ridiculous the more you have to reveal them, expose them, explain them. Yeah. It So based on your description of the trajectory of the series, it, it sounds like I know that Jamie Lee Curtis is seen as like the main heroine of the, the series, but it sounds like it's more a thing between... Michael Myers and Loomis like it sounds like that relationship is one of the main through lines up through whenever the sixth one you said six and then seven is where they bring Jamie Lee Curtis back okay that is H2O that's H2O got it which was written I haven't watched that one in a while I wonder how it holds up because it was written by Kevin Williamson who wrote Scream Mm -hmm. and I remember it feeling very very specifically immediate post scream as far as the tone yeah uh but it's it's fairly effective they ignore and this is a a recurring pattern now in the series as well they completely ignore four five and six Mm -hmm. there's no mention of the supposed daughter that jamie lee curtis had uh she is she has faked her death she is the i guess the headmistress at a school um like a a boarding school where her son attends. Uh, Her son is played by Josh Hartnett, who sidebar, I always want to call Ethan Hunt and Ethan Hunt is Tom Cruise's character from the mission impossible series. Yeah. Don't know why I always want to call Josh Hartnett, Ethan Hunt, but I do. Uh, I think this was the first movie he was in. I think they have the introducing Josh Hartnett credit on it. What year did H2O come out? I want to say 97. Okay. Then, would it would, I feel like it would have to be his second movie because he was definitely in the the faculty which I watched recently, which was I think ninety five. Let me I'm a, because we're super professional. I'm actually gonna look this up right now. Uh, Josh Hartnett. We're gonna go to Wikipedia. Ooh. Okay. Let's see. Wikipedia right up top says he made his feature film debut in nineteen ninety eight in Halloween H2O, okay. followed by The Faculty, which was also 1998, hence the confusion. Uh, same thing happened when I tried to determine whether Paul Rudd was in Clueless or Halloween 6 first. Okay. Uh, when he was credited as Paul Stephen Rudd. Ooh. I believe Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, has the introducing Paul Stephen Rudd credit on it. Came out the same year as Clueless. Clueless may have even been released first. I'm not positive. Got it. Totally unnecessary information, though, incidentally, Paul Rudd in Halloween 6 plays the adult version of Tommy Doyle, the little boy that Laurie babysits in the first movie. Ooh, what a nice little circle around. Yes. It's a a good way of bringing it. It's like when we were talking about, um, what is it called? Friday the 13th. And that other guy named Tommy comes back. Tommy Jarvis. Tommy Jarvis comes back in number six. Six. Yes. Six. Well, and five. Yes, and five. Um, so that's neat. 
Uh, so well, and then two, the the secretive villain at the end of part five, Michael is busted out of jail by this mysterious man in black. And when they were making part five, they had no plan in place for who it would be. They basically had an attitude of, well, we'll let the Halloween six people figure that out. Dicks. And so <laughs> it is rude. Uh, so they introduced this idea that the man in black is a guy named Dr. Wynn, who is a coworker of Loomis's who they the two of them had one conversation together in the first movie and i guess the expectation was that everyone would remember this character from one conversation in the first movie mm-hmm. anyway none of this has anything to do with halloween or halloween 2 no this is actually really intriguing because it, it might uh, answer some of my questions oh okay keep going uh so anyway halloween h2o they bring back jamie lee curtis uh, jamie lee curtis has a scene with her mom her mom do you know who her mom is um, the lady from Psycho. Yes, her mom is Janet Lee. Uh, yes, famously, uh, Marion Crane from Psycho, a uh, famous victim in the shower scene. They get to have a little scene together, which is fun. Uh, in the background behind Janet Lee is the same car from Psycho that Norman Bates uh, buries her in the swamp in. Oh. Uh, so Michael tracks her there, and eventually she is able to uh, dispatch him, or so she thinks. Uh, but they actually, I believe the producer, I think it might've been Mustafa Akkad who, uh, the Akkad name is on, I think almost every single one, if not every single one of the Halloween series as producers. Yeah. I believe it was, uh, the Akkads who made them shoot an explanation at the same time they were shooting H2O, uh, for how Michael wasn't actually dead, how like he crushed the larynx of an EMT and put him in the jumpsuit and mask so that Laurie would kill him. And so he couldn't yell or say anything yeah uh so michael was still out there uh busting stuff up and in resurrection this was says halloween one and two when you click to listen to this podcast but i guess full spoilers for the entire halloween series sorry kids (laughs) uh the prologue of halloween eight which is resurrection is him tracking laurie to a mental facility where she is now uh incarcerated and uh he kills her finally oh no Yeah, yeah yeah But she, don't worry, she's going to be back in the next Halloween movie, which is being uh, co-developed by Danny McBride and David Gordon Green, which is apparently going to not only resurrect her character, but ignore every single movie in the series except maybe the first one. Okay, that's weird. Um, all right, so that doesn't it's, answer my question. The Halloween but, multiverse theory. Um, it That makes me it it intrigues me in that i like this idea of having a a nega loomis where loomis saw michael myers as the embodiment of evil there being this other doctor in the background that sees him as this tool for chaos so like there are all these questions that i'm sure multiple people who who have ever watched this movie have asked which are how does michael know how to drive why is michael so strong if he hasn't moved in um 15 years like how does he know how to disable all of these are it's all irrelevant if he is an abstraction right then it doesn't matter if he's an actual person then you're right it totally falls apart and they even address this in the first movie when loomis is talking to uh (laughs) the other doctor uh, when the guy says to him, essentially, it's like, well, he can't even drive. How, what are you talking about? How is he able to drive off in your car? He can't. He's been incarcerated for 15 years. Nobody taught him to drive. And Loomis is like, he was doing pretty well last night. Whatever the crap he says. Right. So they, they acknowledge it. If he is, if he is evil in human form, 
then the rest of it doesn't need to be explained. As soon as you make him a person, then I agree with you completely. None of it makes sense. I, but it, it matters to me though, in that like being him being an abstraction of evil still has to be rooted in him being like having experiences and him being a person like me. If I were tomorrow to be like, you know what guys, I'm an abstraction of evil. It's not going to teach me new skills. No, it's not you're gonna... also not an abstraction of evil. Right. You're a person. You can't decide to be an abstraction. Yeah, but like he, these skills don't just come because you're evil. Like you don't like. It's not like D and D, where <laughs> the moment you decide your alliance and your background, it's like, all right, cool. You get a plus one to deception. You get a plus one to sleight of hand and you get a plus. It doesn't matter if you understand these concepts or not. It doesn't but matter. How do you know that any- the same basic concepts don't apply here? If he's an abstraction of evil, we don't know where abstractions come from. We right. don't know the rules on the other side of the dimensional veil. I guess so, but that also that means that you have to explain it the way that the writers of the later films felt they had to, and that they felt they had to make it something supernatural. Whereas, like, I think that if you make it something to where, unbeknownst to all of us, there has been a, a another force kind of cultivating this abstraction of evil, whereas, like, Loomis has been trying to stomp it, this other guy has been trying to enhance this flame, it really makes it more of an intriguing story in that there's this cat-and-mouse game between Loomis and Michael Myers, and I feel like if I were, if, if I were to try to map out where this sh- series would go from the time of uh, movie two onward... And I knew that I was going to make it about Loomis and Michael Myers. It would be about Loomis trying to fix his mistake and Myers doing what he does in that, like, he just likes killing for killing's sake. Right. Um, I mean, I agree with you completely that the story you're describing does sound immensely compelling. That isn't really the story these movies tell because nothing was planned from movie to movie. Right. In fact, they'll do things like the end of part four. They tease the idea that Jamie, the little girl, is now going to be is somehow now afflicted with the same whatever emptiness Michael has and is now going to be the new killer. And they completely abandon that by the time you get to the next movie. If they developed this idea of, as you put it, a nega Loomis working behind the scenes as an opposite number and it's really a battle between good and evil using this unstoppable force in the in the form of Michael Myers as a, a tool one way or the other, yeah, that'd be super interesting. They don't do that, though. Um, and so when, when Dr. Wynn pops up as the antagonist of part six, it feels completely out of nowhere. Hmm. If they had planned it all from the jump, totally, you could have done something really interesting. The only, though, to my knowledge, the only real consistent, like, heavy, continuity-driven horror franchise is probably, what, Saw? Uh, yes, like, Saw I believe Saw is very so. continuity-driven. More so than, I mean, Chucky a little bit, and I think as I talked about at least once this month. Yeah. The only real, like, slasher mascot franchise that hasn't ever been rebooted. Mm-hmm. It's all one... Not you know it's not uh, it's not super serialized, yeah. but every bit of the mythology still counts. They still retain all of it, and they fold parts of it back in at various times. Yeah, very much not so with the Halloween movies that seem to introduce and abandon concepts at will. And going back to 
Number two was supposed to be, to the best of my knowledge, the definitive end of the Michael Myers story. It's like, we blew him up and he melted. We're done. Yeah. So there was no intention of taking these characters in the story any further. And when they were reintroduced, there are definitely elements in four and five of what you are describing with the Loomis and Michael relationship as far as it is very much a cat and mouse type of arrangement where Loomis is trying to hunt down Michael in part like you say, to rectify this mistake he feels that he made. Mm-hmm. If that was the entire movie in both cases, maybe I could advocate a little more strongly for them. Although there is a school of thought that suggests number four is the best and purest of the Halloween sequels. I have not seen four, five, and six uh, in a very long time. Right. I've seen every, even Halloween three, I've seen more recently than four, five, six. Okay. Because I I went through and read all the synopses for all the Halloweens just to see where it was going from two, which is the last one I had seen. I think maybe I saw H2O when I was a kid. Cause I was like, horror movies. Yeah. LL Cool J. That's um, yes. LL Cool J also in H2O and Adam Arkin. Isn't it yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt in oh. an early film appearance? Oh yeah. He gets uh, an ice skate through his face, I believe. Oh, it's poor, poor JGL. He's done That's, all right. Yeah. No, he's doing great. Um, but I, so yeah, I went through and read them. And so four, if I remember correctly, basically he's in a coma until someone, one of the like nurses. Well, they're transferring like, him. Yeah. They transfer him to another facility. And I remember uh, in the ambulance, as they're transferring him on the gurney is when the Halloween theme first kicks in in number four. Uh-huh. And then as they're transferring him in the ambulance, I know like he puts his thumb through somebody's forehead to kill them. Yeah. And then I guess he flips the ambulance and runs off into the night. Yeah. And he wakes up just because someone's like, man, he has a relative out there. And he's like, <gasps> so, yeah, that's right. Kill. That's right. Um, and I forget what he does for the first act or so of number four. I know in number four, Five, he's found by like a vagrant or somebody who nurses him back to health over the course of a year or so. Oh, yeah, that's so nice, super nice. Yeah, uh, a vagrant wearing uh, the same exact jumpsuit that he wears and then has like his mask just hanging out. And he's like, I made this mask for you, it's a symbol of my people. And then he kills the guy and puts on the mask doesn't say thanks because he can't talk but you know he gives a thumbs up to the dead body and then that's how the fifth one goes fifth uh, yes freeze frame credits right although i do think the mask that he wears in five is supposed to be the same mask from four despite looking absolutely nothing like the mask from four yeah so i was also reading that in terms of the masks the first and second it's the same exact mask um and after the end of the second movie, as you said, they expected it to be the last one. So they, they like, gave it to the actor. They were like, you can have this. Um, take it with you. I think after the second one, I think in the second one, it was Dick Warlock who was primarily playing the shape, who's a stunt coordinator. Yes. Uh, in the first movie, it was Nick Castle. Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, if you if you Google Nick Castle, Nick Castle's had a fascinating career. Nick Castle was uh, a friend of Carpenter's from film school. And he plays the shape, uh, 
primarily throughout the entire movie. Not when you see his face. That's a different actor. Yeah. But when it's mask on him just walking around doing his business, that is all Nick Castle. Would go on to a career as a director. He would he directed uh, The Last Starfighter. He directed Dennis the Menace. He directed Major Pain with Damon Wayans. I he love also, that movie. He co-wrote Escape from New York with Carpenter. And he has co-story credit on Hook with James V. Hart. And the two of them co-wrote August Rush. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Nick Castle. Yeah. OG Michael Myers. <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, Dean Cundy, the stunt coordinator, was uh, the shape primarily in Halloween 2. Yeah. Have you seen Major Pain with Damon Wayans? Nope. Good. I'm very we're going to do it. it on this show. I know that poster. I've yep. seen that poster so many. That image of him like talking to his cadet, I guess, but looking at the camera, like winking or something on there, mm-hmm. is burned into my burned into my brain. As it should be. Yeah. All right. I think I know what I'm going to give you maybe next or at some point. Great. Um, now yeah, that- Dean Cundy. Yeah. Co-story by on Hook. <laughs> just, that's the funniest one to me. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, uh, back to the masks. Yeah. The... Uh, they essentially gave away the mask and decide, and then realized it was a mistake. And so every movie from there had to just refabricate it. But uh, it's weird. It's weird that from four to six, there is no mask continuity from movie to movie to speak of. The mask in four does not look like the mask in five or six. Yeah. Mask in five does not look like the mask in four or six. The mask in six does not look like the mask in four and five. Yeah, I don't know why that would be. I feel like at that point they were making Michael Myers masks like in stores and they were just like fudge it, we'll buy it. We'll just we'll just buy the the, the mask. Well, that was the other thing in 4, right? Doesn't he find his mask at a store like a costume store or a hardware store that sells masks? I know in the first movie he robs a hardware store and they reference Yeah. him stealing a mask. But in 4, I forget it's a store that he steals it from. And it does seem a little bit odd that a store in Haddonfield would stock a mask of Michael Myers who yes. terrorized their town so severely. Though the idea in like in the continuity of the movie is that that mask, the one that he's wearing was just like wholesale in all the stores even when he got it. So like that's why uh, Ben Tremar Tremar yeah, Tramer. That's why he had the same exact mask. Right, that does track. The same way in the screen movies, how you could buy the ghost face outfit anywhere, and they established you could buy the ghost face outfit just about wherever you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does track. Yeah, and Ben Tramer, who um, doesn't get to take Laurie to to prom. Yeah, that was the biggest dead. bummer. Yeah. <laughs> he's super dead. <laughs> I, I, oh, man. I want to see the scene where she is like, all right, I'm ready to get my life back on track i'm ready to you know get things back to normal and i think the one positive piece of this is that, that boy before annie died on. uh yeah he uh he agreed to go to prom with me and and she goes around asking and she's they're like he's, he's dead he 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 died in a horrible burning crash right, and not even michael that got him Yep. Like a, a cop plowed into him. <laughs> and then the vehicles exploded. Jeez. Oh, yep. Um, yep. Bad bad times for Lori. Uh, that's, that should be the name of the new series. Bad, bad times, times for, for Lori. Lori. Um, which uh, I don't understand how they're going to bring her back. Well, they're going to the ignore 
every bit of the franchise, I assume, except one and or two. Interesting. Uh, do you have any additional thoughts about these two movies? Well, we're basically talking about all of these movies. Do you have any additional thoughts about all of these movies? I mean, a bunch. We haven't even talked at all about how most of Halloween Resurrection is about this internet reality show where people have to spend a night in the house and film it with like body cams or I think they're like attached to their heads. Uh huh. And then Michael comes back to his house and I'm like, what are y'all doing in my house with these cameras? Stab, stab. Yeah. And Buster Rhymes is in that one, and Tyra Banks. We talked about this all the way back when we discussed uh, uh, Higher uh, Learning. Thank you, Higher Learning. Yeah, their first movie together. Yes. Um, I I would be upset if a bunch of people were filming a show inside of my house as well. Without your permission? Yeah, of yeah. course. It also boggles my mind why they haven't just, I don't know, demolished the house. Like, in the second one... They there was a bunch of people gathered outside being like, tear it down, burn it down. Uh, And I don't see why they wouldn't. It was on sale in the first movie. Like Lori's dad was selling the the house. And Loomis has one of his craziest lines in the series at that point when he's like, he killed one of their own. This is awake. (laughs) And like the the deputy he's with reacts as if he didn't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. Like just no response to that whatsoever. Yeah, the I I liked the the police in this town because like this guy is going around with this gun, being like he's a, he's an evil thing. He's, I <laughs> he's shot got him a six permit times. for the gun, <laughs> and, and, and and they're just like, yeah, yeah, all right, we'll get the guy. Don't even worry about it. Just just don't worry your pretty little head. Like <laughs> they're humoring this guy so much, and he is being the craziest dude I've ever seen in a movie. Um, there's that scene where he's literally like running around the police car being like, I shot him six times. And he says it so many times. He just keeps repeating it. And it's like, dude, I get it. We're police. We're trained to be calm and you are messing it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So interesting thing. Donald Pleasance, I, I love so very, very much. And he is, I mean, he is Loomis. I feel like nobody else could have done it. Uh, Though, interestingly, I believe Donald Pleasance was Carpenter's third choice for the part. Mm-hmm. His first two choices, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, both passed. Yeah. And it went to Donald Pleasance. I think he accepted it because his daughter was a big fan of Carpenter's first two movies, uh, Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. Talked Donald Pleasance into into doing the movie. Yeah. And Donald Pleasant said he didn't, he said, and this is, this is the way the story goes. He said he didn't understand the script, didn't understand the character, did it because his daughter said that he should. And, uh, Carpenter took that to heart initially because he was a fan of Donald Pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I guess the two of them eventually became close friends. And Donald Pleasant told him later, he was just trying to test his director and his, the level of the director's faith in the project. But, He's absolutely Loomis was as synonymous with the series as Michael was. Yeah. And without Loomis, the movies feel a little bit hollow. Even H two O, which I think mostly works largely because of the presence of of Jamie Lee Curtis, it feels missing a key element without Loomis involved. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he was at least a driving force. He was the whole B story of the of both movies. Like Michael's doing his thing and he's he's kind of hanging out with all these teenagers and Loomis is really like actively trying to find if 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 you took out all the teenager stuff 
then it, it's basically like a like a detective movie starring this doctor and a and a cop. Right. You know, they're they're following all these clues, trying to find where they might be. They're staking out a house, and it's this guy who has previous experience with this killer. It's it's like if they did a better version of that one movie with Keanu Reeves, uh, who was obsessed with I think it was Richard Gere. Um, I want to say it was like the the stranger, the follower. Was it the Watcher? The Watcher. Yes. It's like if they did that movie. Um, where essentially this guy is like, I'm the only one who can catch this person. Uh, and the uh, other person's like, I have a relationship with you. You're my favorite to tease. I'm Keanu Reeves. Um, but you know, there's also teenager stuff in it. Sure. Yeah. It all tracks. All right, Don't worry a, about it. The, the audience gets it. What's your, so your elevator pitch is what the watcher meets Halloween. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I'd watch I mean, that. I mean, it's it's not even that. It's just a supercut. Uh, yeah, it's a supercut of the first and the second movie, but you cut out all of the stuff where, um, where Michael Myers is following the teenagers and in the houses, and it's just all of the Loomis cop stuff. So from beginning to end of the Loomis story of one and two, but him just following all these clues. I would totally watch Bracket and Loomis as a, like a procedural. Yeah. Like almost like a CSI thing, except it's always Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Every episode, they're investigating a new murder by this one dude. Yeah. And they just can never seem to catch him. And in the season finale, every year, they get this close. <laughs> and then he always either eludes them or doesn't, and yet somehow returns in the season premiere of the next year. Right. Because they there's always that shot where you you could never confirm it with a body like they shoot him and he goes over a, a like bridge into some water or I think that's actually what happened in at the end of four or like he goes to, he falls down a mine shaft or something and comes right. out near a body of water see uh, it it are automatically works um it's a it's a true tried and true <laughs> formula <laughs> um I mean I think it would be interesting because. Michael Myers is what you would what I what I feel is a very competent character like beyond being an abstraction of evil like he he's very meticulous about the way that he goes about killing people um he he is patient he hides he like like plants different seeds like for example I know it's it's hokey in a in, in from a certain perspective but when he turns up the water to get the two kids out of the hot tub causes one to leave kills the guy comes in like very very quiet very patient and then kills her using the water that he initially heated up like that takes a certain amount of like pre-planning yeah, foresight oh, and also when he heard that they were planning on going to the sheriff and he essentially cuts the the fuel line of the car and then pops every tire in all the different cars um he'd be a formidable foe um not just for people he's trying to kill but like as anyone who's trying to hunt him down that's true i mean he really is the most meticulous right like leatherface is a blunt instrument Mm -hmm. jason is mostly a kill bot as we established right freddy doesn't really have to worry about efficiency because in his realm he controls everything yeah so in that way michael myers is really closest to like the batman of these slasher icons that's true 
Hmm. I'd watch that. I totally, right? Like, yeah. Um, but don't steal our idea, audience. That's ours. Patent, pending, trademark, t- copyright, missing out podcast, Lex, Michael, Tari, J. Oh, I don't need, I don't need my name on this. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't need my. Fine. I don't, I'm like a silent partner in this idea. Got it. All right. M- missing out, trademark, patent, pending, Tari, J. Oh, no, you can't put the podcast name on it. Ugh. All right. Tra- patent pending, trademark, copyright, Tari J. Miller. There we go. Um, alone, no one else involved, just him, wink. Yeah. Um, maybe you should lose the uh, the wink. Uh, I don't think I can. Legally, I have to include it. <laughs> That's the rule. Don't, don't, don't try to change the rules, Lex Michael. Hollywood has its rules, and I'm just following them. You got to include the wink. It's all about the wink. You can't see it under my my James T. Kirk mask, but I'm winking all of the winks. Uh, wink, wink, wink. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. So anyway, yeah, we talked about <laughs> quite a bit today that has nothing to do with the first two Halloween movies. We really did more of a... Uh, look at the series as a whole right there's a lot there's so much to the first movie that i would love to have been able to go into more detail about but yeah if you if you haven't tracked the entire franchise it's worth getting this info dump if you were looking to do that instead of actually sitting down and watching all (laughs) seven right i mean are there is there anything of the the detail that you wanted to cover that you think um if gun to your head, last chance uh, to share, because uh, let's say I'm going to murder you right after this podcast that you'd like to share with our audience. Just just assume that that's going to happen um, or, you know, pretend it won't. OK, so if there was one thing, I guess the biggest thing that sticks out to me is the contrast between the first movie and really every other movie in the series as relates to to efficiency and elegance and non-gratuity and non-overindulgence. Because yes, it's a movie about a dude in a mask who murders people, but it's not the story that is told, it is rather how the story is told that I think makes the first one so unique and so excellent. Because there have now, in the years since, been innumerable imitators. But for my money, not another movie since has been able to accomplish half as much with twice the elements. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to sign us off now and, uh, you know, I'm going to start playing the music right now. Thank you. Future Tari. Um, thank you for joining us for missing out guys. Uh, I am Tari J. Miller. I'm Lex Michael. And this is Missing Out. You can find us on all, if not most, of the podcasting platforms. Google Play, uh, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher. So go on those things. Tell your friends. Leave us uh, reviews. Uh, Five stars if you'd like what we're doing. Uh, I imagine you like what I'm doing right now because it's a thing that's not annoying. 
Yep, it's my favorite thing you do. Yep, it's one of my cute quirks. Yep, all of my cute quirks. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find us on social media at Missing Outcast, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. And you can catch Lex Michael somewhere. Where is that? Uh, that is at the Lex Michael. Nice. That's all over social media. Uh, and you can find me at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. Once again, thank you for listening. See you later.